Was it Paul who said, oh, to depart and be with Christ? That's far better. But we're bound. We're bound for that land. And what we can do now is remind ourselves day by day that that's where we're going. We have a hope. It's not in ourselves, but it's in our God. But tonight, I want to talk about that hope under the subject of glorification. I want you first turn with me to Romans chapter 8, please, to set this doctrine of glorification in its context in the whole matter of our redemption. Romans 8 does that for us. Um, I want to, before I begin, um, give credit for much of the content of my message tonight to um, Professor John Murray, who's no longer with us, but whose writings I have been enthralled with most of my um, life, theological life. Um, I found so much help from Professor Murray, and particularly on the subject, there's not a whole lot um, out there written on the subject, and I found much help, so I want to give credit to Professor Murray. Uh, look, at, look with me at Romans 8 uh, and verse 28. I think this was brought up not too long ago here in this pulpit. Or was it in Sunday school, brother? Sunday school, yeah. All right, Romans 8 and 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This verse, these verses, in what we call the chain of redemption, beginning with foreknowledge and predestination and going all the way through to glorification, this chain that we call the golden chain sets this doctrine of glorification in perspective as to where it falls in the grand scheme of redemption. I just want to notice a couple of things before we move on. First of all, in this in this um, um, setting, notice that our glorification has always been the terminating point of our redemption. Since our foreordination in eternity, this glorification has always been, in the mind of God, the terminating point of our redemption. Let's say it in another way. We will never be, we will not be fully redeemed until we are glorified. Secondly, notice that our redemption is not finished, not complete, until we are glorified. This is the final link in the glorious chain. Our redemption is incomplete before we're glorified. This is one emphasis or aspect of the already and not yet, which you've heard many times 
in this place. We are saved and we are being saved. And the final act of that salvation will be our glorification. And then thirdly, from this setting of Romans 8.30, notice that though not accomplished yet, it is as good as done. And that's what, uh, that's the tense that Paul used in the writing of it. Uh, he, he, he said, we, we are glorified. We're not yet, but we, it's as good as done. So that's, that sets for us the context of glorification in the broad scheme of salvation. It's that final act before which we cannot say we are fully saved or fully redeemed. Now I want to turn... Um, one other thing I want to mention, um, there's been a lot of talk here, rightly so. Pastor Mark's been teaching a class on biblical theology. And this study of glorification falls under the heading of systematic theology. And in systematic theology, you take what the scripture says, you collate all the information on a given subject, and from the collation of that, um, you define terms, you, um, you organize and then you finalize, you develop your doctrine. So when we talk about glorification, there's not just one passage in the New Testament that we can turn to and say, here it is, here's the whole ball of wax. No, we have to look through the scriptures and we collate the scriptures and then we put them together and we then have our doctrine of glorification. So what I'm saying is get your Bibles ready and ready to turn to uh, some scriptures tonight. First of all, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And here we can get, I think, find a good handle and get a good grasp on what we're aiming at when we talk about the doctrine of glorification. And we're going to look at, we're going to start with verse 35. That's uh, page 961 in your pew Bible, if you need that. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? Will what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of weed or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. 
But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you haven't already recognized it, glorification is all about the body. It's all about the body. Now I want to um, just give you my outline. First of all, what I want to do is define what we're talking about. What is glorification? We'll go through a definition. Then I want, and second point, to speak to its timing and congruity, and I'll explain what that is when we get to it. It's timing and congruity. And thirdly, I want to speak about its witnesses. Its witnesses, okay? All right, first of all, its definition. When we read in our Bibles or read anywhere the term glorified or glorification with reference to the people of God, what are we to understand by that term. What is glorification, in other words? What is it that will constitute the believer's glorification? And of course, I use the term will because as I've already said, glorification is something future. It has not occurred yet. None of us is glorified yet, though it is certain that the people of God shall be glorified. All right, so what is it? What is the believer's glorification? So first of all, I'm going to tell you, as we often do here, what it is not. We want to say, tell you what glorification is not. So in the first place, glorification is not the believer's death, nor any of the blessings associated with the believer's death. So what are the blessings associated with the believer's death. First of all, release from the body of corruption. That's a blessing associated with the believer's death. We are released from this body of corruption, which every day reminds us of the curse brought upon us by sin. 
and that in many ways this body hinders us in living for God. It was a testimony of Paul in Romans 7, was it not? I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing, for the will is present with me, but to do that, to perform that which is good, I find not. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Our death does deliver us from the effects of this corrupt body. It does do that, but that's not glorification. There's a level of conformity to the image of the Son of God that we, that we find unattainable while we're still in this body of flesh. There's a level of conformity to the image of the Son of God that we find unattainable while we're still in this flesh. Death releases us from this body of flesh. That's a blessing. A blessing to be released from it. But that's not glorification. Secondly, there's another blessing associated. The blessing of being in the presence of the Lord, the immediate presence of Jesus at our death is one of the, glory, is one of the blessings of death. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.8. The contingent of the people of God now in heaven are referred to as what? The spirits of just men made perfect. Hebrews 12, verse 23. The spirits of just men made perfect. These are now in heaven, are now in the presence of Christ. And if any of us should die in Christ before the Lord returns, we would take our place among those spirits of just men made perfect. We would be in the presence of Christ and free from the corruption of this flesh, but then we would still not be glorified. This is not glorification. Well, if our glorification does not consist in these, being free from the flesh, being in the presence of Christ, what does, in what does it consist? What is it that the believer is to look for as the terminating point of his redemption, the goal of his sanctification? What is it? Well, Paul expresses it in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 2. He says, for in this, and he's speaking of his earthly tent or his earthly tabernacle, referring to it in the context, referring to the body in which he himself has suffered. And he says, Paul says, um, for in this, in this body, this temple, temple, this tent, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. To be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. The redemption which God's plan for us and which Christ purchased for us is a redemption from sin. And that redemption cannot be said to have reached its ultimate goal until every last effect of sin has been dealt with and destroyed. 
The scripture tells us that the last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. 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 What is death? Death is the separation. It's the rending apart of soul and body. In glorification, soul and body, what? Are reunited. The effects of sin are vanquished. Death is destroyed. Death has not yet been destroyed. It has not yet been swallowed up in victory in the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. The words that we read. Glorification has in view the ultimate and final victory over sin. Victory over death itself. The destruction of death itself. Reuniting of the soul and the body as it was originally intended in creation. Paul expressed it in 1 Corinthians 15, 50. We shall be changed. We shall be changed. This is Paul's definition of glorification in, 8, in Romans 8, 23. The redemption of the body. That's what he says in Romans 8, 23. The redemption of the body. Let me read it for you. Romans 8, 23. Starting at verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption of sons the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. This is glorification. Our glorification consists in this change. A resurrected body, like unto Christ's glorious body. Philippians 3 and verse 20 and 21 if you're taking notes, write those down. You can look at them later. Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the focus of the second coming as it relates to the people of God. We will be changed. This, what Paul speaks of, the redemption of the body. This is glorification. It is the complete and final redemption of the whole person. When in the unity of body and spirit, the people of God will be conformed to the image of the risen Exalted and glorified Redeemer. Glorification is where we are made whole as God intended when 
he created us. When the very body of our humiliation will be conformed to the glorious body of Christ. God is not the God of the dead, but the living. Bodies as well as spirits. Nothing less than a fully redeemed man, body and soul, can constitute the glory into which God will bring his people. One essential aspect that we remember as we talk about this glorification is to remember, as we read in 1 Corinthians, that Christ is the first fruits of our glorification. He's the first fruits among many brethren. 1 Corinthians 15, once again, and verse, I believe it's verse 20. Verse 20, he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, that by man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as an Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Christ is the firstfruits. So what does that mean? He's the firstfruits. He's the firstfruits uh, in, in terms of his relationship to his people. He's only firstfruits or firstborn as it relates to his people. He's firstfruits of something, right? When you bring in a harvest and you, you, you get the first fruit, the first piece of fruit, that's representative of what's going to come, right? Christ is the firstfruits among many brethren. He's the firstfruits as it concerns his people. This, brethren, implies the certainty of our glorification. His glorification, his glorification assures us that we will be glorified with him. This is what it means that he is our first fruits. Our glorification then consists in its basic aspects in our being clothed upon with a body like Christ's glorious body, the one which he received at his resurrection. And you say, well, brother, tell me more about that body. Tell me more about it. Well, I'm sorry, I can't tell you a whole lot about it because <laughs> I wasn't there. I know it's, it's uh, it was possible he appeared in a room without opening the door. I, that's about all I know um, about his body. And uh, he ascended to heaven with it. But if you ask me to describe it, I can't. I just know it's glorious, and I know that I'm looking forward to it. So that's what glorification is. It, deals with, it has to do with the body. It's, it's the reuniting of the soul and a renewed body, a body without sin, as one whole person. You will be one whole person. Your body will once again be joined to your soul. That glorified body, that sinless body, will one, at one moment, in the twinkling of an eye, be united together and forever, eternally, live with God. 
Well, that's what it is. That's what it is. It's not complicated. Let's talk now about its timing. Its timing and congruity. The timing is at the time of the second coming. We've just seen that glorification must wait for the resurrection of the body. It is at that time that Paul tells us we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. This is the second coming. It is when, as Paul tells the Thessalonians, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then they which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. It is then, the second coming, that our glorification takes place at the Lord's return when we are resurrected. That's its timing. But secondly, it's congruity. Congruity. What do we mean by that? We mean this. The glorification will involve all of God's people together. And maybe this is something you've never thought of. But it will involve all of God's people at the same instant together. In the twinkling of an eye. All of us will be clothed upon with that body from heaven. It will involve all of God's people. This must be important because Paul is careful to mention it in two of the major passages in the New Testament dealing with the resurrection. I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians 4, verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the, trumpet, the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. Glorification will involve all the people of God together at the same time. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, in verses 51 and 52, he says, We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Our glorification then will be an instantaneous change that will take place for all of God's people when the Lord Jesus descends from heaven with a shout of triumph over our last enemy, death. Then will come to pass the saying that is written, recorded by Paul. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? 
Oh, death, where is thy victory? Oh, death, where is thy sting? So all of us together at the Lord's return, the second coming. So what's the significance of that point? Why do we make the point that all of God's people together, why is that important? It's significant that the final act of the application of redemption is one that affects all alike at the same moment of time in the final accomplishment of God's redemptive plan. When God crowns his work of grace by glorifying his people, it will be as one body that he does it. And we can see how in the wisdom of God it must be this way. This is why. In the eternal plan of God, those whom he purposed to redeem are one people. So far as the mind of God is concerned, since eternity past, when God chose us in Christ, those he would save by applying them the merits of Christ through his spirit, not one name has been erased, not one name added to the role of God's redeemed in heaven. When Christ died, he died for a predetermined people, a people that God predestined for all eternity, a people that he determined to save in Christ. In Christ. Our union with Christ is the point of our congruity. It's the point of our communion. In Christ. We are in Christ. It is this in Christ-ness, if I can say that. Our in Christ-ness that is the point of congruity among the people of God. This is what binds together all the redeemed of all ages. And it is this that is the thread tying together all of the aspects of redemptive love. It was fitting in the plan of God that all who were chosen, chosen in union with Christ from eternity, should at the consummation of the world the consummation of redemption, be manifested together as the children of God. It was in Christ that we were chosen. In Christ we were redeemed by his blood. We were quickened together with Christ, raised up together with Christ, and made to sit in heavenly places in Christ. And it was Christ's purpose in redemption to present the church to himself a glorious Church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish before him. In all of this, all of this, in one grand display at the consummation of the age, Christ will deliver up the kingdom to his Father. 1 Corinthians 15. Once again, let me read it for you. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then comes the end 
when he, that is Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he, Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, under Christ's feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. That's God. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. When it's all done, when it's all said and done, Christ will stand before the Father as one with his people in solidarity with those God has given him, all of us together. It's fitting that we should be glorified together. All of these things are ours on account of our union with Christ, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. When Christ returns, he will come again in the glory of his Father who has purposed our redemption from eternity. He will also come in his own glory as the great God and Savior who has accomplished the Father's will. And he will come to make manifest to all the then world who are the sons of God. One of my favorite passages in this regard is Romans 8. which we're going to get to in a second. We'll all be there. We'll all be there. We'll be there with all the saints of all ages. Could God devise a better, more effective way of receiving glory to himself? There will be a perfect harmony of the revelation of the Father's glory who planned our redemption the Son's glory who accomplished our redemption and the glorious manifestation of the children of God who are glorified as their last enemy is defeated. And all of this, as Paul reminds us, is to the end that God may be all in all. What a scene that will be when Christ shall deliver up the kingdom to God And you, with your brethren, will be rendering eternal praise to God that he may be all in all. Well, it's apparent, is it not, as we leave this point, that the doctrine of glorification really has much more to do with the glory of God than with us. And the third point, closing point, I want to speak to you about the witnesses, the witnesses of our glorification. It has witnesses. Our glorification will have witnesses, and they fall into two categories. 
animate and inanimate. Animate and inanimate. In terms of the witnesses that we would call animate or living witnesses, there are two categories, believers and unbelievers. First, unbelievers. At the visible, public, glorious return of Christ, Revelation 1-7 says, Behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also who pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. There will be witnesses when Christ returns and we're glorified. There will be, witness, there will be unbelieving witnesses. There will be those who will be crying for the rocks in the hills to fall on them because of the fury of the wrath of God. Matthew 24, 30. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And for the unbelieving, that will be a terrible sight. A terrible sight. A sign of judgment to come. The wrath and fury of God poured out upon those who refused the Savior. So, unbelievers will be there witnessing. If you're an unbeliever tonight, I want you to think about that. Christ should come in your lifetime. Think of the horror that would fill your soul at the sight of his coming. You'll be one of those crying for the rocks in the hills to fall upon you. Or should Christ tarry until you're dead, you're in the grave, for years, for thousands of years perhaps, there will be a day when he will call you forth from the grave and you will stand before him in judgment and in terror. There will be witnesses to our glorification. Even this clear prophetic warning that Christ gives will not induce many to believe. There will be, says Peter, scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. These witnesses will only be convinced too late when the Lord returns in flaming fire, taking vengeance on his enemies. There will be witnesses, unbelievers, but then there will be believers. Believers. The hope of the believer is centered here in the second coming of the Lord Jesus. This is the blessed hope, according to Paul in Titus 2 and 13. We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This return, this appearing, is indispensable to our glorification. 
We are waiting for it. We are waiting. We are longing for it as God's people. So there are living, breathing people who will be witnesses. But there are also, there is the inanimate, inanimate world. I've made reference to Romans 8 and verse 19. Paul, um, Paul in Romans 8, 19, for the creation, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Brothers, did you know that? Did you know that? You're not the only one longing for the revelation of the sons of God. Creation is groaning, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility. And not willingly, Paul says, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of what? Our bodies. Our bodies. That's what we're waiting for. Our glorification. The reuniting of body and soul. Creation is waiting also. The glorification of believers is bound up with the renewal of creation. It is not only believers who are to be delivered from the bondage of corruption, but the creation also will be delivered into the liberty of the glory of the children of God. And this will occur according to Romans 8:23 at the redemption of our bodies our glorification so then creation itself is waiting for this event because it is one in which it will not only be a spectator but it is an event in which it will share in the glory that will be revealed creation itself Will be, delivered, will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the liberty of the glory of the children of God. This is Paul's way of affirming what Peter said in 2 Peter 3, 13. According to his promise, we look for a new heavens, a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells Righteousness. Well, it's just to summarize, our time is up. This will be a cosmic event of astronomical proportions. The manifestation of the sons of God, let's think of it, every person from the day the world was created until the day Christ returns, who died in Christ, who died in faith in the living God, every person at that moment will be changed. It will be a cosmic 
event of astronomical portions. The manifestation of the sons of God will be a celebration unlike any other that you have ever seen. It will be a wedding party unsurpassed in its magnitude for joy. Think of, think of it. The father's delight in his son revealed. The son's delight in the bride revealed and displayed. And the bride's enthrallment with her husband. A wedding party unsurpassed. Several implications we could go through quickly to repeat what I've said a few minutes ago. No unbeliever will be there at this party. No unbeliever will be there. For believers, God will be all in all and serving him will be our only and chief delight. And so let us praise and worship our God in hope and anticipation of the glorious completion of the redemption he has planned for us. He who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's coming. It's coming. For our comfort, for our patience, for our endurance in this life, while we're buffeted from within and without by our own remaining sin and from the adversary, while we endure, let us be comforted Let us learn to patiently persevere as we wait for the Lord's return, as we wait the termination of our redemption and our glorification. I want to close by reading a quote from William Hendrickson on Ephesians 4.30. Speaking of the day of Christ's return, it's the day of Christ's return when our lowly body refashioned so that it will have a form like Christ's glorious body will rejoin our redeemed soul in order that in soul and body the entire victorious multitude may inhabit the new heaven and earth to glorify God forever and ever. The very meditation on the fulfillment of this hope should have a purifying effect on us, on us, Hendrickson said. And then he quotes 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. Amen.